We've uh, come now to the point in our service where we spend some time opening up the word together. Uh, if we haven't met yet, if we haven't had the pleasure, my name is Tar George. I'm one of the pastoral staff here. Uh, it's such a delight to be able to speak with you and have you be here uh, to worship. Uh, if this is your first time here, a special welcome to you. Uh, we are going through a new sermon series right now in the summer, and it's called Voices of Longing. What we're doing is taking some time to go through the Psalms and think about uh, what does it mean to go to God with our longing? What does it mean to go to God with our needs, to ask Him for things that are necessary for our faith and life? And so we're going to be doing that uh, today at Psalm 84. Uh, I noticed that some of the bulletins are running out, so if you, if you haven't had a bulletin, if you uh, open your Bibles or open a Bible app, uh, we're going to be referring to that psalm as we read it together. And so to read it for us today is Rosanna. Our reading today is from Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Salah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Salah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wickedness. For the Lord God is the sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rosanna. I want you to uh, pause for a moment and try to think back and remember the single most amazing day of your life. Like, actually, do that now. <laughs> I wonder, what were you doing that day? How did you feel? Did you maybe receive some good news? Was it an important event in your life? Were you surrounded by friends, or did you simply experience something that was really breathtaking by yourself? What made it for you so very special? I want to tell you about the most amazing day of my life. My wife and I had just gotten married, and we had planned our honeymoon to New Zealand. And among the many tourist destinations we were told about, one of the places we were most excited to visit was a place called Hot Water Beach. Let me tell you about this place. So we're driving, and we pull up to this incredible view of the ocean, and it's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. If you've never been, Hot Water Beach has this beautiful coastline, and it's well worth the visit. But it's not just any beach. What makes it unusual, you see, is that it happens to run beside a whole series of underground hot springs. And with a little effort, you can actually access the water from these springs. 
And so the idea is that you go down to the beach and you rent a spade, and then you dig a large pit in the sand right next to the ocean. And within seconds, hot water from the underground springs begins pooling inside and filling it right up. You find yourself sitting in your own personal hot tub right there on the beach. <laughs> Now, that alone would have been an amazing day. But as I sat there in my hot tub, I remembered, I remembered that my amazing wife had packed us a picnic of delicious fried chicken to enjoy at the beach. <laughs> well, the wheels began turning in my head, and I decided we were going to enjoy our picnic right then and there. And so there I was, sitting in my own personal hot tub on the beach at sunset with the love of my life eating delicious fried chicken. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what your amazing day looks like, but it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> I remember turning to my wife and saying like the psalmist, I could stay here forever. <laughs> One day here is worth a thousand back home. <laughs> it was the best day of my life. And you know, that was, that was several years ago. That was several years ago. Now we're a little older, we have a child, we're not sleeping so well, and life seems a little less exciting. Things are hard, new realities have set in, and I have to tell you, the honeymoon phase has long since ended. Sometimes we look back on those days in envy and wonder, was that really us? Was that really us? It seems like such a different and carefree version of ourselves. And on some of our hardest days, I think we find ourselves thinking, I really miss that. I really miss that. Wouldn't it be nice to go back there again? You know, curiously, I think this is where the psalmist finds himself this morning. Except the place that he longs for, the most amazing time he can recall, it was when he was actually in Jerusalem, worshiping at God's temple. And as he thinks about that, he's looking back and longing to be there again. He's remembering how good it was once to feel and be so near to his God. Because for one reason or another, he hasn't been feeling that way recently. Maybe you can relate to that this morning. You see, life has been hard. And for many of us, the honeymoon stage has long since passed. We once enjoyed God and drew a tremendous encouragement from our walk with Him. Our spiritual lives now feel a little less exciting. I think the psalm is for people like us. Because here in our passage, I think the psalmist wants to help reinvigorate our relationship with the Lord. Here in the text, I think he invites us here to do two things. First, to dwell with God joyfully. And second, to journey with Him in strength. Dwell with God joyfully and journey with him in strength. Let's begin with the first point. Well, the context of the Psalms, if you don't know, are quite important. They are songs and poems, certainly, but their purpose in the Bible is to instruct us in worship. And that's really important. You know, this isn't just a song that reflects someone's personal experience with God. It is that, certainly, but more than that, it's also written to teach the congregation how to meet with God in different seasons. So. What exactly is the psalmist trying to teach us? Well, firstly, I think he wants to teach us to find joy in the Lord. He begins in verse one by describing how wonderful God's temple is. You look with me. He says, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. Now, it's not totally clear, but scholars believe that he's recounting his time in Jerusalem. 
a time when he was praying and singing in God's house, the temple. It was clearly a highlight. He describes it as being lovely. In verse 2, he says, my soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. That's strong, strong emotive language. And it's easy to think, uh, reading the psalm, that this man has a rather strange fixation with a building. (laughs) It's not really about that. The temple was certainly beautiful and holy, but for the psalmist, it's the person who dwells there that makes it so. You see, the temple is lovely to him because who dwells there? In fact, the psalmist reiterates this. He says, my heart and flesh sing for joy to who? The living God. The living God. God is the source of his joy. God is the reason he enjoys the temple and why he longs to return here again and again and again. He is passionate about being with, enjoying, and serving this God. In fact, his joy over God is so staggering that it sometimes feels kind of alienating for the reader, doesn't it? I don't, I don't know if you've ever hung out with a couple who are really infatuated with each other. Like their relationship is so exciting and they're so attached at the hip that it feels almost uncomfortable to be there. <laughs> Like they're holding hands and talking to each other all the while as you wonder why you're even there. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way? Couples in the room, have you ever made anyone feel that way? (laughs) Don't lie. (laughs) I know you have. I mean, you feel kind of like this third wheel, don't you? You do. And I have to confess that when I read the Psalms, sometimes it feels a whole lot like I'm a third wheel. (laughs) Is that your experience? Because I read about all this gushing love from the psalmist to God and it feels kind of uncomfortable because I'm not really sure I can relate to God in quite the same way. And I know, I know I'm not alone in that. Almost everyone I've talked to at this church has at one point or another felt completely alienated by the psalms because there's this outpouring of love and affection for God that you're hearing from scripture that you don't think you could possibly muster in and of yourself. Am I right? I think we often read Psalms like this and immediately think, I could never feel that way about God. That's not even realistic or attainable. And it's for this reason, I think, that you've glossed over Psalms like this because you think they're not for you. But it is for you. You see, the Psalms are full of authentic emotions as people try to meet with God in different seasons of their lives. Some psalms like this one express deep longing and love for God, while others express maybe feelings of abandonment and even frustration with God. You have the whole spectrum in the Bible. I think it's fair to say that we won't relate to all of them in every season of our lives, but, but, it's worth asking as we read these psalms, what is it about this person that he enjoys and sees God like this? What would it look like for me to learn to do the same? Because it does matter. It does matter. I think many of us have grown up in the church and we've learned how to worship God and we've learned how to follow God and we're even learning how to obey God. But most of us, I think, have never really thought about what it might mean for me to enjoy God. If I were to ask you right now to describe what your relationship with the Lord is like, would you use the word enjoyment? 
Is that an element of your Christian life? Because it seems to me from Scripture to be an element of the Christian faith. One of the key doctrines in the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked this question, what is the chief end of man? What is his or her goal? What is the purpose and meaning of each of our lives? It answers simply, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, I want to tell you, this is what the gospel is all about. The primary goal of the Christian life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Grace Toronto, let me tell you in plain terms what I think that means. The purpose of your life, Christian, is to make God happy and to be happy in Him. The purpose of your life, Christian, is to make God happy and to be happy in Him. And to that end, the purpose of God's Word, including the Psalms, is to teach you how to make God happy. That is to serve Him and glorify Him in every aspect of your life. And its second purpose is to teach you how to be happy in Him. That is to enjoy Him and all His benefits from now until eternity. I wonder... Does that surprise you to hear? See, I think the Lord wants us to develop habits of enjoying Him. For most of us, I think that feels like a tall order. And that's why, that's why we need this psalm. Look at me at the text again in verses 1 to 2. The psalmist here is talking about how much he desires and longs after God. Everything about this man, his soul, his heart, and his flesh is straining to go visit God's house. But he can't right now, and we don't know why. But for whatever reason, his physical distance from God's house has evolved into this kind of spiritual distance from God himself. He misses meeting with God in the temple, yes, but even more than that, I think he misses the kind of believer he used to be. Do you get that sense? I think he misses the faith he used to have in the Lord because that felt really meaningful to him. And as he looks around and considers other believers around him, I think he begins to grow kind of envious, maybe even pensive in his writing. The tenor of the passage leads scholars to believe that he's probably feeling kind of dry, actually. Which begs the question, Is it possible that his experience of God might actually be a lot more relatable to us than we had first imagined? Because like many of us this morning, he's not where he wants to be spiritually. But he is trying. He is trying to get there. He comments that even the sparrow, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord. He's saying, even the birds, even the birds have this privilege of meeting with you. Even they, as unimportant as they are, seem closer to you and enjoy more of your presence than I am right now. And there's something in that image that the psalmist wants us to grapple with this morning. I was reading a little bit about sparrow and swallow nesting habits earlier in the week. And I was curious to learn that they're the type of birds that will literally make a home anywhere. Like, actually, they'll seek out the smallest cracks and crevices in buildings, streetlights, roofs, signs, and all kinds of other fixtures. 
Everywhere they go, every place they find themselves becomes this opportunity to nest and make a home. Regardless of the conditions, they're the kind of birds that are determined to settle in joyfully and make a home wherever. And they're doing that, the psalmist says, in the temple of God himself. Regardless of the circumstances, they are determined to find a home here, here of all places with God. I wonder, what would it look like for you and I to do the same? What would it look like for you to cultivate godly joy with that kind of persistence? What would it mean for you to settle in with God in every kind of season you might find yourself, whether good or bad, exciting or apathetic? Because I think this passage calls us to be the kind of people who seek out joy in the Lord actively rather than the kind of people who simply wish for it passively. Let me ask you this. Is it possible that the cracks and crevices of your life that seem inconsequential on the surface are in reality these hidden but glorious opportunities for you to push in and learn to dwell with the living God? Because here's what I've noticed in my time as a minister. That's the people who are determined to do that by God's grace who typically experience the kind of joy that the psalmist is talking about. And it's infectious joy. Joy even in the midst of incredible hardship because it's centered not on circumstances but on the living God himself. Let me tell you, I want for that kind of joy to fill my life because it hasn't for some time. And listen, I want that kind of joy for you also. I think this is what the psalmist wants from us. And I think that's why the psalmist concludes with this statement, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Do you see what he's saying? There are people finding so much joy in God's house that it's like they've basically made a home there. They might come and go from the temple, you understand, but they have this attitude that never wants to depart from God's presence. They are constantly dwelling with him, singing to him, talking with him. All of their lives from Monday to Saturday continue to be infused with his presence. He is never far from their thoughts because he's at the very center of their lives. Do you understand what this passage is asking of you? Because it radically changes the way we approach our lives with the Lord and what it means to really, really enjoy him. Christian, God doesn't want you to make a visit. He wants you to make a home. The psalmist is saying that it's your persistence to dwell with God constantly and your determination to meet with him in every season of your life that conditions this kind of joy. And God wants you to have it. He wants that for us this morning. I think the psalmist wants to teach us how to dwell with God joyfully. And here he invites us to peek behind the curtain to see his own life and example. This is his first point. Now, secondly, I think the psalmist wants to teach us to journey with God also in strength. He's been showing us what it means to dwell with God joyfully, but as he continues the psalm, you'll notice that the setting begins to change. 
where he began talking about God's dwelling place in the temple, it feels like that location almost begins to recede into the background. All of a sudden, the psalmist begins talking about roads, highways, valleys, springs. Uh, What's happening here? Well, scholars think that the psalmist is shifting his focus from those who are in the temple in God's presence to those who are on a journey to get there. He begins recounting the pilgrimage that a believer had to take to reach God's temple in Jerusalem. Except as he continues the psalm, this journey to God begins to take on an almost spiritual meaning. It starts to become for him a metaphor about what it means to journey with God through difficult seasons with strength. And the question we are left with as we read the remainder of the psalm is precisely that. How do you find strength to live the Christian life? How do you journey with God when your tank feels rather empty? I think the psalmist gives us some answers here. He begins in verse 5 with this new imagery. He starts to envision people who are on the road. Uh, They're tired. They've been traveling for some time. And it feels like the journey has not been kind to them. Like the psalmist, they want to be home with the Lord, but they have a ways to go to get there. And yet, despite their difficulties, the psalmist affirms that they're going to make it. Why? Because God is giving them strength, and he's showing them the way to go. Look with me at verse 5. He says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Now, pause there for a second, because one of the curious things you'll notice about this section is that The destination is no longer Jerusalem and the physical temple. Rather, it's a place called Zion. Now, this word Zion appears in the Bible, sometimes interchangeably used to refer to the physical city of Jerusalem. But oftentimes in Scripture, you'll notice that Zion seems to denote something else. Many times, especially in prophetic literature, it refers to Jerusalem not as it currently is, but rather as it should be. Zion starts to become this reference to a better city, a different Jerusalem that is considered God's eternal dwelling. So, what is he saying? I think it's all part of this metaphor that the psalmist is constructing. This is about the believer's journey in faith, not to, to Jerusalem, but it's about his journey and his or her journey to God's eternal dwelling in Zion, in Zion. He's writing to a group of believers who are journeying in the faith, and he's encouraging them to keep going because they are awaiting true glory. He's saying that God's people are making their way to a better city, a heavenly Jerusalem. Do you follow me? I think Samus wants to give us fuel to keep us going in the faith. If you remember that your final destination is with God in glorious eternity, dwelling with Him in unimaginable joy and peace, how could you not be encouraged on the road? How could you not be encouraged on the road? He's saying that the destination means that the journey is worthwhile. Even if it's the worst road imaginable, and it's paved with suffering, heartache, and difficulty. Isn't it encouraging to know that it at least leads somewhere good in the end? The hardships and suffering that we encounter on this journey of life don't have to overwhelm us. That's what he's saying. And in fact, I think that's why the psalmist says in the very next breath that as these believers go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. 
This word baka comes from the Hebrew word for weeping, and scholars think it denotes this kind of desert drought. This valley, this valley is a place where nothing grows. It's hot, it's dry, and there's nothing fruitful about this place. I imagine that some of you this morning feel like you're there right now spiritually. You might be feeling weighed down in the faith or discouraged by the circumstances in our church or maybe even disillusioned about how your life is going right now. I think this psalm is for people like us, people who are in the valley. And yet the most astonishing claim from this passage, listen, the most astonishing claim from this passage is that the Lord wants to meet us in the valley. He wants to meet us there and renew our strength. The psalmist claims that somehow, somehow in God's providence, even the valley has this potential to become a place of refreshment and maturing for those whose strength is in the Lord. It does. And you might be thinking, if God cares so much about my faith in our church, then why doesn't he just rid us of the valley? Why have a valley? And to that the psalmist answers, because it's part of the road to Zion. It's part of the road to Zion. Listen, the means by which we get to Zion is through the valley. You have to go there. But God has not left us alone. You need to know that wherever you are in your journey of faith right now, God is not just giving you a destination this morning. He is also affording you the strength to travel. How do I know that? Look at me at verse 6. Not only does God send rain into this valley to water it and give relief, but these believers themselves, these believers, somehow become God's instruments to make it a place of springs. The valley becomes bearable, and dare I say, even beautiful, because they hold fast to God and each other as they travel. They transform this place from being hopeless and destitute into a place of flourishing because they know who strengthens them. Grace Toronto, do you understand? Do you really understand? There are some of you here this morning who are tempted to run from the valley, but you need to hear that it's on the way to Zion. You have to go through but you're going to be okay because the Lord wants to meet you there. In fact, it may well be that the very place you are trying to escape is the very place that the Lord wants to transform in and through you. May that be possible. The psalmist says, you press on. You press on and don't be afraid. Ask the Lord to meet you in the valley. Because in the rest of this passage, this is exactly what we find the psalmist doing. He turns his attention to God. In a prayerful and poetic way, he begins recounting those things that he knows to be true about God and the life that he offers. I think that matters. I think that really matters. And so often when we're in the valley, we're tempted to just grumble, to grow embittered against God or each other, become so mired in life's disappointments. We lose sight of the bigger picture. I think these words from the psalm are instructive to us. You know, because it may be that in difficult seasons, we'll have to cling all the more to God's promises 
and trust that the road he's taking us on is actually intended for good, even though it goes through the valley. And that feels really hard. I get it. And one of the things I love about this passage is that the psalmist doesn't try to minimize what you're feeling. He doesn't do that, nor does he give you any cliche advice. Rather, I think he gives us words. He gives us words to articulate what it is we're going through. Look with me at the text. When we feel overwhelmed by suffering or loss, I think we get to cry out like the psalmist here, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. The psalmist seems so confident that God wants to listen to him. And he wants to listen to you too. When life disappoints us or we feel disillusioned by the state of the world, I think we're asked to remember these words, that a day in God's courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And the psalmist wants to remind us that this world is not our ultimate home. We don't have to just lay up our hope in worldly things. And when we feel tempted by sin, when we feel tempted by sin and we feel drawn to disobey God, I think we're asked to consider, like the psalmist, wouldn't I rather be a doorkeeper? Wouldn't I rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness? Isn't it better for me to be near God and with Him than for me to give in to this particular sin? You see what he's doing here. In his difficulty, he reminds himself of what is actually true about the gospel. He reminds himself that he can indeed go to God for strength in different situations. And by the way, as he considers that, I think the reality finally hits him about who this God is. In verse 11, he says these glorious words. He says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He starts to recount all these things in his life that God has done. He reminds himself of God's protection, his generosity, his justice, and his goodness, both in this life, but most especially in the one to come. He assures himself that he can find strength with God, ultimately because that's who God is. That's who God is. This is a God who wants to meet with his people. And listen, how do we ultimately know that to be true? It's because of this, that long ago God made a decision to send his son, Jesus. If you pay close attention to our psalm, you'll notice that there's this strange, almost awkward plea in verse 9 from the psalmist. He says, behold, our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. Scholars are puzzled about these words, but they think that it's this prayer from the psalmist asking God to remember the king in Jerusalem. You see, in the Bible, God had promised that he would one day send a king who would restore God's people and take them on a journey and bring them back to Zion. This was to be a king who would rule God's people forever and sit at the right hand of God himself. He would receive worship with God and have dominion, power, and authority over all of creation. But, but, he would also suffer on behalf of God's people so that they might be able to experience this eternal life that the psalm has been speaking about. 
You see, the psalmist here is asking, he's praying that God would see his people in their despair, in the valley where they are, and send them this promised king. My friends, I need to tell you that through Jesus, this prayer has been answered. Gospel tells us that in Jesus, God came down to meet with us in the most intimate way possible. He took on flesh and came to dwell among us. The gospel records how he ministered in the temple and how he ministered in the valley. He lived all his life perfectly before the Father with more joy and strength than the psalmist could even imagine. And then at God's appointed time, he took this same road. He took this long road to Jerusalem, knowing full well what was waiting for him at the end. It was the cross. The Bible tells us that he did this. He did this because he knew that it was necessary for us to have this eternal life. You see, my friends, at the cross, these words from verse 9 came true. Jesus, the King of Zion, became our shield. He sheltered us from the wrath and punishment that we deserved, and he died in our place. Ironically, the gospel required that God turn his face away from his anointed that day so he could turn and look at you instead. This is the wonder and the marvelous gospel that we believe. And so that there would be no doubt that we have been forgiven and that we have this life, God raised Jesus to life from the dead and he has given him the very kingdom of Zion. My friends, it's because of him that we, like all the New Testament believers and believers before, can say now like the psalmist, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Some application now. What what does this passion call us to do? How are we to take this psalm, to sing it and apply it? I think there are three points of application given to us here based on the three blessings that appear in verse 4, 5, and 12. So starting backwards, application 1. The psalmist says in verse 12, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. If you're here and you're not a believer, You've heard a lot today about the Christian life and what it means to have God's joy and strength in your life. I want to invite you to put your trust in this God. The psalmist wants to give you a new destination this morning, one that ends not in hopelessness and futility, but in glorious eternity with God. I think there are no doubt many things that you can seek and pursue in this life, but I'd ask you, I'd ask you, not to sacrifice the highway to Zion for lesser roads leading to lesser things. Don't do that. If you're not on this road right now, if you don't know Jesus for your salvation or you're not functionally living in a way that shows that, I want you to take the on-ramp this morning and merge onto this highway. There are people available to pray with you after the service and answer any of your questions if you should like that. Please do come. I'd ask you to think about that. Second application. The psalmist says in verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Some of you are in the valley right now, and it's hard. I want you to ask the Lord to meet you there because this psalm does assure us that God wants to give you his strength. How do I know that? Verse 7 It's because the psalm says that God is actually waiting for you at the end of this journey. God has ordained that you will appear before him in Zion, 
and so he will help you get there. Trust him. Your struggles, whatever they may be, are but momentary setbacks compared to the glory that awaits you. And so I'm praying, I'm praying this morning that the Lord would send you rain in the valley today. And that even out of your season of drought, you would emerge well watered by springs, blessed and able to bless others. That's my prayer and hope for you this morning. Third application, the psalmist says in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. I want to ask you, how are you enjoying God personally right now? Do you have a regular habit of listening to God through his word? Are you finding ways to pray to him? Not just mechanically, you understand, but with the kind of genuineness, kind of genuineness and joy of the psalmist. I think the Lord wants you to really enjoy your time with him. Ask him for that. Ask him for that. Pray to him and say, God, would you help me? Would you teach me? You teach me how to make you happy and how to be happy in you. Do that. At the same time, I think the psalmist asks us, how are you enjoying God corporately right now? Psalmist seems to suggest that there's something beautiful that happens when God's people gather as a body and worship him together in person. I know as I say that, there are some of you in the congregation who are unable to be here regularly on Sundays for appropriate reasons. If that's you, know that God sees your faith and he honors your commitment to worship him where you are. I actually think the psalm gives you good language to pray and long to return here regularly someday soon. However, I think there are others of us who have grown quite comfortable worshiping from home or skipping occasional Sundays altogether. I want you to hear from this passage that there's something beautiful you're missing out by not coming. I think your walk with the Lord can only be so fruitful if you don't have a commitment to meet with Him regularly in this house with His people every Sunday. I want you to take that to heart. I want you to encourage each other. And if there are people you don't see this morning, that you would encourage them to come out. I think the psalmist would want that for all of us. Listen, you do these things and the psalmist says, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. I believe that God will make us this kind of community, this kind of community that is so filled with his joy and his strength that we would be really good and do really good for the city that we live in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for this text that gives us a vision of joy and strength in your presence. God, wherever we are in our journeys of faith, if we're lacking those things, I pray that you would replenish us, that you would give us joy and strength. For those of us who are in the valley, I pray that you would meet us, Lord, that you would refresh us, that you would help us to find these springs of water so we would have relief. I pray that you would help us to walk this life and meet with you with intimacy, Lord, that we would enjoy you in all the ways that you have determined. I ask this in Jesus' name, through your power of the Spirit, amen. We have some time now for some questions, if there are any. And Stephen's going to be helping out with that. All right. Um, the first question we have is this. The courts, the temple, God's house, those are all physical things the psalmist recalls. As Christians, however, we have no such physical symbols anymore. How can we therefore call to mind the same kind of joy as a psalmist? 
Um, can you read the last part of that question? Uh, as Christians, we don't have such physical symbols anymore, like the, the courts, the temple, mm. um, God's house. How can we therefore call to mind the same kind of joy as the psalmist in our mm. text? That's good. That's a good question. I think these physical symbols and these places kind of help us uh, embody these feelings of joy and strength and help us worship God better. Um, I think these symbols do actually exist because where, where does the New Testament teach us that God dwells right now? It's not in the temple, uh, but it's in His body. It's in His body in the church as we gather here today. So I would say that something about meeting together on Sundays is a kind of symbol. Uh, uh, Jesus also refers to, uh, to Himself His, his body as being the temple of God. I think there's something about Christ and dwelling in more and more in Him that, that should produce in you a symbol. I think the, the, the Bible talks also about how each of our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I think that too is a symbol. There's, there's, if anything, there's more ways for you to dwell with God now in the New Testament than there ever were in the Old Testament. Uh, God, is, God is not somewhere out there that we have to go journey to Him and, and go to His temple. Uh, no, the, the New Testament teaches that, that, that God actually lives inside of us. that he's come to dwell inside of us by the Holy Spirit. And so that should give us tremendous encouragement. I hope that's helpful for symbols. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, the next question is uh, this. It says, verse 11 says that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Mm-hmm. What's it mean to walk uprightly? It surely can't mean to be sinless because we all fall short of God's glory. Uh, does that mean God would withhold good things from us because uh, we all sin? Or does it mean trying our best to walk uprightly? Now, what does it mean and how do I know if I'm actually doing that? Oh, I think there's like four or five questions in there. <laughs> uh, we didn't get to spend that much time on that because uh, this is a fairly large text and there's a lot happening here. Uh, at the very least, I think walking uprightly means that by walking in the righteousness that God has given to us by faith in Jesus. Uh, that's what it means to walk uprightly. Um, and I think you asked another question of, uh, does, uh, does God withhold blessings from us when we don't walk uprightly? Um, I, think, I think if you feel like, hmm, I think some of the blessings that you read about in the, the Psalms are definitely temporal, and I think we can all identify that there are certain ways that God has blessed us in this life that are wonderful and good. And yet, even those things, uh, those things are pale comparison to what lies ahead of us. And so some of these blessings, I think, um, we're waiting for them uh, in the new heavens, in the new earth, when God recreates this, when we get to Zion, that these, all these promises, however true or false they feel in your life right now, someday they're going to be true in the new creation when we reach Zion and we are with Jesus. Um, so I hope that's helpful. If that's confusing, um, uh, please come talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to dialogue with you. Thank you for that. And um, the last one. is uh, sometimes it feels like the difficult time never ends, like the walking in the valley. How do I know I'm in the place where God wants me to be, where he could meet me and strengthen my faith, or if I'm, suff- or if I'm simply suffering because of uh, the consequences of my sin? That's heavy. Um, I don't like to give any advice about these kinds of things when someone's in the valley because I don't really know what it is that you're going through and and what you're experiencing. I think there are certain things that are very heavy in this life that can can drag you down and feel like God has actually abandoned you and you feel very frustrated with God. And I don't want to cheapen that by a a bad answer. Um, 
I think the Psalms actually give us a good way to, to channel some of that, to, to actually talk to God and, and air some of our frustrations. And, and during the season we're, uh, series, we're actually going to be going through some of those other Psalms, Psalms where uh, the Psalmist doesn't say, how I long and faint for your courts, but actually, uh, this feels really hard, God, and it, uh, why have you forsaken me, and, and where, where do you seem to be? Uh, so if you're, if you're feeling that this morning, I know that that's okay. Um, I'd be hesitant to say that you're feeling that way because of the consequences of your sin. I don't know your personal situation. I, I don't want to paint the picture that, um, that God is punishing you in, in some way because of, of your sin. If you're, if, you are, if you are a follower of Jesus and you, um, I, I think there are implications in this life for the things that we do and, the, um, and for our sin, but, but we do have a, this, this overwhelming belief that Jesus Christ takes our sin, that there's no, no punishment uh, because of what he's done. And so if you're feeling like you're, uh, you're being punished, uh, that God is, is somehow withholding his goodness for you or, or punishing you because, because of your sin, I, I, um, and you are a Christian, I, I, I don't, I'd ask you to evaluate that. Um, so I, I'm not really sure how to answer that. I don't want to misspeak. So if that is you and you're, and you're working through that, please come talk to us. Uh, there is prayer available afterwards, and, and I'm certainly more than happy to answer any more questions uh, after service too.